Welcome to Testing Code, a podcast about software development and software testing. On today's episode, we talked with Luke Perkins about the book Seven Databases in Seven Weeks. The subtitle of the book is A Guide to Modern Databases and the NoSQL Movement. We discuss a bit about each database covered, which includes Postgres, Redis, Neo4j, CouchDB, MongoDB, HBase, and DynamoDB. This episode is sponsored by my good friends at PyCharm. Welcome, Luke Perkins, and thank you for coming on to Testing Code. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brian. So you wrote the second edition for seven databases in seven weeks? Yeah, that's correct. Before we jump into the book stuff, tell me about you. Who are you? Who am I? Uh, yeah, well, I'm, I am Luke. Um, I have worked in a variety of roles in the industry, uh, largely uh, in a technical writing capacity, but I've also done uh, some other things as well. I've worked in uh, on the customer success side of things. I've worked as a developer evangelist and uh, developer advocate. And uh, yeah, so currently I work for a, uh, a nonprofit organization called the, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, or CNCF, which is essentially, it's like a version of the Apache Foundation, but with a strong focus in uh, containers and um, especially Kubernetes. So basically, okay. if, um, if, uh, if the Apache Foundation tends to be largely centered in projects around Hadoop and Java and things of that sort... Uh, the the CNCF tends to be more focused in the in the Kubernetes ecosystem, with a, a lot of projects written in uh, in languages like Go. So it's um, yeah, similar concept, um, but with uh, but with a different focus. And you know, thus far, my work at the um, at the CNCF has been largely focused in things like uh, tech writing and web design. But I've also been writing uh, blog posts on uh, for some of our our uh, constituent projects and I've, you know, been going to conferences and giving meetup talks and all kinds of stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, so that's what my current role comprises essentially. Okay. Uh, initially, um, initially I got into databases, uh, which I actually, I haven't been spending a lot of time on databases in the last couple months, but, uh, my initial big foray into databases came when I worked at a company called Basho a couple years ago. Um, Basho was the company that gave the world react, uh, which is a, a NoSQL, uh, a more or less uh, pure key value database, and uh, it was in that role that I that I really began to wrap my head around a lot a lot of some of these deep database concepts uh, in terms of uh, you know crucial differences between SQL and NoSQL databases, uh, technical trade offs involved with making choices around uh, data modeling and data consistency and and those kinds of things. So uh, so between my current role and my, my role at Basho, I've uh, kind of uh, jumped around a little bit, as we do nowadays in the tech industry. But but yeah, that should be a, uh, enough overview uh, for the uh, for the podcast, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. And I think um, and I may be having you mixed up with somebody else, but I I have a memory of meeting you in person at a dinner a couple of years ago with Casey Rosenthal. Yep, that's me. Yeah, okay. that's when we. Yeah, that's when we started following each other on Twitter and and interacting. Uh, you know, sending sending tweets back and forth now and then. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I do recall. I believe it was at the uh, at the buy and buy uh, place up in up on uh, Northeast Alberta with uh, some pretty tasty vegan fare and uh, uh, some really stiff pours. 
<laughs> yeah, and I, I keep meaning to head back there. I haven't been there since. You're a Portland person as well, right? Yeah, I um, I, I mostly grew up here. Uh, spent my, my formative years uh, close by and um, went to college in southeast Portland at, at Reed College and went away for grad school for a couple of years, but then moved back about six years ago. So, you know, really the, the bulk of my, my adult life has been been here in town. And then how, I'm curious, like how, how somebody got into like the technical writing, how did that happen? In a word, uh, in a word, uh, sheer happenstance, <laughs> basically. Um, you know, I, I certainly didn't, uh, um, I didn't, uh, have an, a, a degree in it or, or anything of that sort. Uh, and it's something that I came, uh, that I came upon, uh, I guess a little bit later in life in my, in, in my early thirties. You know, I basically, um, I took a path that that when I was starting out on it, I thought was extremely unique. But I think it's actually a fairly well-worn path at this point, which is uh, I went to school for many years, um, got a political science PhD, uh, confronted a, uh, a a catastrophic academic job market where I I tried really hard to find uh, some kind of tenure track uh, position in uh, in academia that was going to enable me to live. Uh, uh, um, quiet and uh, fulfilling life, but I, I unfortunately, like a lot of people in my in my cohort and in my generation, wasn't able to do so. So at the age of uh, 29, going on 30, I, I decided that I was gonna, I was just gonna do something different in life. Um, started learning a bunch of programming languages and uh, and decided that I was gonna throw myself headlong into working in the industry. Um, got my first, uh, tech job back in 2012, uh, doing some kind of technical marketing type stuff and writing blog posts and doing kind of more introductory, uh, material for, for developers. And, uh, in 2013, I was working at a company in Portland called Jan Rain and they decided they, uh, their, their tech writing team was a little light on technical content. So they sent me over to, uh, to those folks and that was my first, uh, foray into tech writing. Okay. And from there, uh, yeah, I worked there for about a year and got the job at Basho as the um, as the well, I, I would say lead tech writer, but I was the uh, sole tech writer. So by definition, lead by definitely uh, by definition, lead tech writer there. Um, and that's where I, you know, I, I think that I started to really hone my craft as a writer and uh, as a tech writer and really uh, find my voice and find my niche within the industry. That's cool. I, I think that uh, technical writing and good technical writing is the, the these are some of the unsung heroes. I know there's a lot of unsung heroes in the, the tech world, but definitely good writing is is one of those. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I I mean, I think that right now there there is a growing awareness in the industry that that tech writers are extremely important uh, and that that documentation is is absolutely essential to the the success of of uh, pretty much any software project you can conceivably imagine. Uh, whether that has, um, that awareness is really translated into the kind of institutional clout that, uh, that tech writers, I think, do deserve within engineering orgs, uh, that's, you know, that's a different question. I think that some, some companies really do properly value it, and, and others definitely do not. Yeah. Um, so jumping on to the book a bit, you got involved in a lot of the different NoSQL from your work at Basho. Yes. How did that evolve into you writing the second edition of this book? Yeah. So um, one of the um, one of the authors of the uh, of the first edition of Seven Day Databases in Seven Weeks was a guy named uh, uh, Eric Redmond, 
who was a uh, colleague of mine at um, at Basho and uh, an extremely uh, extremely gifted engineer, um, extremely gifted writer and, and technical educator. Uh, really, just <laughs> I, I think perhaps the closest thing to uh, to a pure polymath and, and Renaissance man that I've I've found uh, in the tech industry thus far. And um, he, um, I worked alongside him on a lot of the documentation. I think that he um, he had built the original documentation site and set up the static site generator and was was really heavily involved with that from the very beginning. Uh, and he actually authored a book about um, about the database React called uh, a little React book. Um, and they, they, I think that Basho used to hand out copies of the little React book to. Uh, to people at at conferences and meetups and things like that. Uh, yeah, I, I mean Eric is uh, Eric's an amazing guy, and uh, so basically, uh, yeah. So the the first edition came out in 2011, and um, in 2016, uh, Eric got in touch with me because uh, you know he basically said, "Hey Luke, um, the book is getting a little um, it's getting a little crusty. It's showing signs of age." Uh, of course, in a, in a field like like NoSQL, things change so quickly that uh, that a book becomes pretty quickly outdated. You know, let alone after um, after four or five years. And he's like, um, "Hey, do you want to to come on as a um, as a co-author on the second edition and uh, and spruce things up a bit?" And I said, "Sure." Uh, so we talked back and forth for a while, and um, it, we both agreed that uh, that. that <laughs> Actually, ironically enough, we both agreed that the that the React chapter in the book uh, should probably go and get replaced by by uh, a different chapter, which we ended up deciding on on DynamoDB for that, which I think was a good choice in retrospect. But yeah, so I guess that I came upon the book just through um, um, what's a what, what's a diplomatic word for nepotism? <laughs> in my experience of writing a book. My experience was that it was more work than I thought about it in the beginning, and I'm guessing your experience is dissimilar. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It uh, it did end up being more work than than I anticipated. Uh, and actually, I, you know, on, on the one hand, it it was nice to uh, to have a bunch of existing material to work with. Uh, no doubt about it. I mean, there are, to be frank, there are are sections of this book that I um, that I, I modified and tweaked a little bit, but um, but ultimately mostly left alone in terms of the basic content and and some of these sections uh especially once that get that really really get into the nitty-gritty details of uh you know uh, columnar storage formats and hbase and things like that uh, i probably wouldn't i wouldn't have been able to write with 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 anything resembling the the clarity and depth that that eric and jim uh jim wilson the other co-author managed to do on their own so that was um so that was a really nice part of the writing process what was tricky about it, though, was uh, is that whenever I was writing, I was always triangulating in my mind between a variety of concerns. One of which was giving the book um, uh, was infusing the book with with my own voice and trying to give my own personal Luke Perkins stamp on it, while also trying to remain true to the uh, to the intentions of the original authors. Yeah. And, and that process, it, you know, it's, it's really tricky because there are times when you think, gosh, you know, maybe I should just, I should just rewrite this whole section or, you know, get rid of it and start from scratch or, you know, maybe I don't like this chapter as much, et cetera. And I just found myself constantly making those, um, those kinds of, uh, those kinds of decisions. 
so it was both it it, w- it was both a, a blessing and a curse in terms of the amount of work that sure. that I was working within the within the strictures of an already existing uh, product, so to speak. This episode of Test and Code is brought to you by PyCharm. I started using PyCharm because of the amazing automated test support, especially for PyTest. But the more I use it, the more I realize how much time it saves me in the rest of my day. I can click commit and walk through all of my changes and make sure everything is really something I want to keep. If I see a print statement that I didn't mean to leave in the code, I just uncheck that part of the file and it isn't committed. Want to try out a snippet of Python? There are tabs at the bottom for quick access to the Python console, as well as to the command line console, version control, and even a to-do list that's populated by to-do comments in the project. I find myself opening other tools less and less. That time-saving of context switching adds up. If you value your time like I do, try PyCharm. Head to testandcode.com slash PyCharm and try the pro version for free for four months. I came to the book because I am interested in NoSQL databases and I don't really actually have a lot of experience with um, hardcore database development. I just, I know I need a long-term storage for uh, for some applications. Where do you think a lot of the readers coming to this book are, why they're showing up here? Gosh, that's a good question. I, you know, I don't really have... Uh... I don't really have any meaningful figures on, uh, you know, percentage of people coming to the book from uh, from different walks of life. I, I, I would certainly love to have that, that information because I'd be able to, you know, tailor it to various audiences and probably uh, probably make a lot of extra money that way. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, you know, that's a great question. I can certainly um, hypothetically I can think of uh, of a handful of of, uh, of character types or institutional positions or, uh, folks, types of folks, uh, to put it simply, uh, who would be interested. I think that, I think developers are obviously a big one, uh, developers that are building out business specific application logic and they want to choose the right tool for that particular job. Um, they want it to be easy to use. They want it to have a readily comprehensible data model they want to understand the kind of guarantees that it provides and so on and so forth. Um, I think that's a big one. Um, I think another one is, you know, some people I think like yourself who are both developers and also just general technological uh, enthusiasts. Um, I think that there's a good, um, there's probably a solid market for those folks as well. Uh, people that just, um, I mean, I'm kind of like this too. Uh, even if I don't work in a particular domain, if I keep seeing a term or uh, or um, a specific vocabulary or, or acronym or something popping up over and over and over again, at some point I'm going to say, you know, dang it, it's time for me to uh, it's time for me to figure out what this blank thing is that everybody's talking about. You know, maybe yeah. chain or something like that. And um, and I think that a lot of people are going to be curious about what this NoSQL is, uh, this NoSQL thing, this uh, th- this paradigm, this way of doing things. So I imagine that's probably a large demographic. Um, a third one is probably, uh, people in technology who they may not be performing the, uh, the nitty gritty of, of building applications, but they are in a position to make, uh, important technological decisions. So people like, uh, like CTOs, um, uh, lead engineers, uh, arch- uh, software, uh, engineering architects, 
and 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 people of that sort would probably be interested as well. You know, people that just need um, maybe they they're not necessarily looking for like an exact uh, an exact fit for a specific use case, but they're going to want to familiar familiarize themselves with um, uh, if not with the NoSQL domain specifically, then at least with you know some of the trade offs they're going to have to be aware of when making technological decisions about data. So I, I guess just off the top of my head, I can think of those um, those three types of folks who who might be uh, who might be really drawn to and would benefit from a book like this. Okay, um, would you? So one of the things I was hoping another reason why I asked you on is because I'm an impatient person and I don't know, know if I want to take seven weeks. And I was hoping you could teach me seven databases in seven minutes. <laughs> seven databases. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> no, actually, it was mostly a joke that I wanted to. I couldn't resist. Um, but you did, you do start, is it, are you okay with us just sort of walking through some of the databases? Sure. So you yeah, st- sure. Absolutely. You start out with Postgres, um, and that's not a NoSQL. Is that for comparison or do you, is, is, it looks like a fairly good introduction to Postgres actually. Yeah, that, that, that chapter really, um, I think is ultimately mostly for the sake of comparison, uh, because if we're going to spend all this time. Uh, with uh, focusing on something that's no blank, then um, I think that the that the blank uh, could probably provide a lot of necessary uh, con you know context and uh, and uh, conceptual scaffolding. And so um, so yeah, so the Postgres chapter is mostly there for that reason. And and like you say, uh, it's I think the chapter is pretty well done. Uh, it's pretty thorough. You know because we I guess. Yeah, we we are implicitly arguing in favor of NoSQL, but we're not saying that um, we're not trying to to denigrate or or devalue SQL databases. And so we really wanted to, you know, if we have one chapter to spend on SQL databases, we, we really want to give uh, those data those systems their due. And uh, we think of Postgres as a as a particularly um, recommendable exemplary database in the SQL paradigm. And, um, and we wanted to show people what it can do. Um, because you know, I guess that, that, um, amongst the three authors, none of us see uh, SQL versus no SQL as a, as a zero sum game where one paradigm is going to win. There's just, there are, are so many ways to use data, so many use cases, uh, so many challenges, so many, uh, sets of trade-offs that people are going to have to, uh, are going to have to navigate that, uh, that you need to really keep both paradigms in mind. And, um, and yeah, to that end, we we thought we would um, give Postgres uh, its due. Okay, is there? Um, I guess I've got a, a broad question. I'll, I'll save for later. But uh, next, so next up is HBase, and I actually have never even heard of HBase before I picked up your book. Yeah, and what is what is HBase? Well, HBase is um, is the one database in the book that's actually a, a columnar data store, uh, which is. Um, yeah, which is uh, it's interesting. It's it's a little bit like um, C or um, uh, relational databases, um, but with the crucial difference that uh, that that data stored in columns instead of rows. And um, mm. okay. um, yeah, that gets um, that gets um, uh, conceptually really tricky uh, really fast. But basically, um, HBase is tends to be used for uh, for really really big. Use cases. I mean, it's definitely um, it's often used as a uh, cited as a kind of archetypal quote unquote big data uh, database. You know, it's definitely not something that you're going to use if you're uh, 
if you're a, a hobbyist developer that's just, you know, building a basic CRUD application and, you know, wants to, you know, wants to do select star from table. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, okay. it's, it's, yeah, it, it's definitely not, not really well suited. Uh, I, I think that HBase is, um, it's something that you'd want to use if you, you know, if you have a team of, of people who, uh, who know how to manage it and use it, uh, at big scale and, uh, and you have a, a use case that, that really fits the columnar way of doing things, then, uh, then HBase is fantastic. But it, it's, you know, it's possible that maybe you haven't heard of it just because it, uh, yeah, it it doesn't tend to be as popular in uh, sort of hobbyist developer or a, or even a small team doing a small like a web application. It, they're probably not going to run into those cases right away. Right, right, okay. exactly. And and, and it, it's because HBase I think tends to be used in environments where you're doing um, really heavy duty uh, data processing. So um, I, it it tends to function very well uh, for like a data warehouse. For example, where so let's say that you are. Um, I'm trying to think of a good use case for this. Uh, so let's say that you are monitoring uh, things that people are are doing on your web application. So you need to just so you're just uh, collecting tons and tons and tons of information from lots and lots of different users, and and you're never really deleting any of that information. You're just keeping it around. You're 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 warehousing it. Okay. Uh, that, that, that data is just growing and growing and growing. And every once in a while you need to perform some kind of, um, some kind of analytical something with it. You know, you need to figure out, um, you know, what percentage of people are coming to our site and, and clicking this particular button. And you're going to have, you know, billions and billions and billions of, of clicks on your site to go through. And you're going to perform some, some big and bold, um, analytical processing something. Um, HBase is, is the kind of database that's really well suited for that. Um, so it, it does tend to be more of an analytical data database and less of a, of what you call a, a transactional database. So if you've, if you're familiar with the, the acronyms OLAP and OLTP, um, A is for analytics, uh, T is for transactional, uh, processing. Um, HBase is very much in the, uh, in, in, in the, uh, OLAP. Okay. Well, there, I mean, now that with a lot of the, um, uh, remote monitoring and stuff there. I mean, there, there's actually probably a growing number of applications where people don't know the questions they're going to ask yet, but they know what data they can collect. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah. And, and for, for use cases where, um, where the core imperative is to just, uh, you know, don't, don't drop any data, just, uh, just anything you can get, throw it in the warehouse and then yeah. figure it out later. Uh, HBase is definitely uh, well suited for those use cases. Uh, so, for um, for listeners who are familiar with um, AWS Redshift, for example, um, I think that's a really commonly used um, analytics database or, or data warehouse, whatever you want to call it. Uh, some others are. Uh, I mean, Google has a couple offerings like um, like uh, Google Big Table, uh, which is which is actually HBase, which I think is actually largely compatible with the uh, HBase API. Okay. Um, that's another big one like that. So, well, Mongo's an easier one to describe, I think. Um, so next up, you've got MongoDB. Yeah, MongoDB is uh, is um, is interesting because it. Uh, well, I guess let's start with the um, with the the definition uh, the, or, or or the category. So Mongo is one of two document oriented databases in the book. The other one being CouchDB, 
which we'll talk about in a second. Okay. But uh, but but MongoDB is for um, is for for unstructured data, and it's it's different from HBase. Well, it, w- one thing that it shares in common with HBase is that it's a kind of database where you can just start throwing stuff in there, and um, all data in in MongoDB is JSON, and you even query it with JSON. It's just JSON all the way down. Uh, <laughs> you can just you can just start throwing JSON objects into MongoDB without without any regard for structure. Although, you know, it's it's important to think about structure, but if you if you wanted to, you could just start throwing any kind of JSON in there and you could uh find a way to query it later. Yeah. So if you have um if you have uh if you're working with data objects that um that don't all look the same where you know some of these objects might have fields that other objects don't have, or some of the you know maybe you'll have nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine objects that look one way, and you'll have one object that looks completely different. Um, you could throw that one object in there, no problem, and, and MongoDB would be able to handle that, no big deal. And yeah, so MongoDB is a, it's a document database, um, and it's built to. Yeah, it's. I I find it interesting that we um, I I think I would think that anybody using a document database that I, I've not tried CouchDB though. So, but it's a common one for if I don't want to use a, a a SQL database and I want to use, but I yeah I'm I'm going through uh, it's an easier API for people to learn, um, but. Um, but I'm not quite. I'm not quite sure what my API, what the information I really need out of the database. Then, then uh, Mongo might be one of the first ones to grab. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and and I think it's precisely because it doesn't. Um, uh, it doesn't really ask you to do any any modeling or specifying before you start putting data in it. Uh, uh, HBase, like I said, is um, is a columnar database. It's it's different from a SQL database, but you still have to define your columns. Uh, you know, HBase, even though uh, there's it's it's less strict in terms of um, in terms of making your data conform to uh, to a, a, a relational pattern. Um, MongoDB like really makes no no like uh, has has virtually no requirements whatsoever. Now, if it's smart to use uh, MongoDB that way is a is a completely different question. <laughs> uh, it, you know, if um, um, I think that most uh, CTOs and uh, technical decision makers would be pretty uh, pretty aghast at the at the prospect of somebody using MongoDB in that way. But um, but one of the advantages is that yes, at the end of the day, um, it doesn't require a lot out of you in that respect. So how so CouchDB is this, I have not used it. But is it how is it different from uh, Mongo? Well, CouchDB is is different because it. Uh, I think that the that the killer feature of of Couch uh, the the killer app, so to speak, is that you can. Um, so like MongoDB, it's, uh, you can throw unstructured data in it as JSON. So it's also, uh, you know, in NoSQL land, when you say document-oriented, when you say document, that pretty much always means JSON. So oh, yeah, uh, so- I, I for, I'm glad you bring that up because my first reaction to those is, why would somebody need an entire database to store Word documents? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, you know, I think we'd probably all benefit a lot if they just came out with it and said JSON, uh, uh, JSON, <laughs> JSON-oriented databases uh, yeah. clear up a lot of confusion. But yeah, um, so the killer app in in CouchDB is that you can actually um, you can write super complex queries and and actually uh, as stored procedures. So in, mm. in, in, in so in MongoDB, you can basically hop into a MongoDB shell and write queries as JSON uh, that that go through the data uh, essentially in real time, and um, and find the documents that that match uh, your query. Um, with CouchDB, uh, you can kind of do the same thing, but you can actually you can upload those queries as documents, and. Uh, and and CouchDB will do sort of perform the heavy lifting of in a in a very map reduce kind of fashion, basically saying, okay, so I know in advance what this query is, and in ter- and in terms of what happens when you trigger that query, uh, Couch is very smart about uh, about very efficiently finding an answer for you. Okay. Yeah. So it's basically so it's a it's a document oriented database. You can throw any kind of JSON at, at it that you want to. Uh, but I think that uh, there is um, there is an interesting queryability advantage uh, to using CouchDB. That's interesting. Yeah. Cool. Um, and then we're, the next one up is something I also have never heard of, uh, Neo4j. Yeah, Neo4j is um, is from a paradigm called uh, graph databases. And and graph databases are really they're they're just their their own thing. Um, they don't they really don't um, you know they they have have elements and and aspects that that make them a little bit like other databases. But but yeah, it's 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 almost like apples and oranges. And uh, so a graph database is basically a database in which what you care about most is the relationship between things. So uh, if you look at, if you were, if, so let's say uh, uh, a family tree is, is a great example of, of a graph database where um, the most important thing is not the, the, the list of names. I mean, uh, you know, imagine if, if I was like, hey, here's my family tree and I handed you a list of, of, of all the people in my family tree and you know maybe their their age and like where they were born or something like that. Well, that's interesting uh, enough as a as a compendium of of people that are somehow related to me. But what you want to know is the relationships between these people. You know who? Um, uh, so this person, uh, who are their parents? Who are their children? And so on and so forth. A, a graph database would would be um, would be well suited for a use case like that. Where the most important thing is, so you can start with putting different nodes in the database. So that would be, uh, you know, personal information about about people in your family, uh, and then you would go through and and uh, and define the relationships between all these people. And from there, um, once you have your your family tree, you would be able to perform uh, really interesting queries. So you'd be able to say, you know, how many people uh, in your family tree. Um, uh, like what's a, I'm, I'm trying to think of a good, of a good query for uh, for a family tree or what's a, what, what an interesting factoid one would want to know would be, um, you know, um, like how many people are within uh, three nodes of me or three relationships of me on the graph, for example. Okay. Um, 
Uh, and the example that we, we use in the book is actually the uh, the uh, six degrees of Kevin Bacon example. <laughs> okay. And we actually we actually pull in a, a ton of, of data from uh, from IMDb, the um, Internet Movie Database. And we actually, uh, and you know, we actually, uh, uh, you know, this is a practical example. So this is something that you can you can run at home and do on your own in conjunction with the chapter. But we basically, uh, you basically put a bunch of 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 information um, about movies and and actors and actresses into uh, into Neo4j into this graph database, and from there uh, we actually walk you through constructing the query that would enable you to figure out within how many degrees of Kevin Bacon a particular actor or actress is. Uh, <laughs> and so, and, it's and believe me, thing. Oh yeah. 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 Super. Oh, it's, 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 uh, it's a uh, fantastic at dinner party. So, you know, if you want to, you want to impress the in-laws, uh, then I, I, I highly recommend the Neo4j chapter of the book, but, um, but yeah. And, 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 and graph databases are, are super cool because I just, the thought of doing six degrees of, of Kevin Bacon in, in, in the other database paradigms, you know, doing that in a, a KV store or a the columnar or SQL or whatever is just it, it, truly horrifying. Like, I, I wouldn't want to be the person called upon to implement that. Uh, so it, it is a very, um, a very particular set of use cases that it serves. And, and I think, um, I mean, you know, Facebook and the social media companies, uh, I think actually use graph databases pretty extensively, uh, for reasons that we can, you know, that are pretty easy to discern. I'm sure, I'm sure Tinder and the dating apps do as well. Yeah. But you're also, I would think that there's a lot of, I mean, in, uh, I mean, it's definitely a computer science type topic of graph, uh, graphs and graph theory, but the, there's a lot of problem sets that um, that you can solve with something like that, that you just, yes, you can solve it other ways, but it's hard. And so it's cool to have that around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would definitely be very hard. Um, and then, uh, okay, so we have a, a couple more. Uh, DynamoDB, also a new one to me. So you, you said that's from, where's that from? Um, so DynamoDB is um, uh, from Amazon Web Services, AWS, okay. and it is a, uh, a managed cloud offering. Uh, so DynamoDB is um, it's it's unlike the other databases in the book because you um, it's not open source, and you you could not run and manage it yourself even if you wanted to. Okay. So basically, um, if uh, with the other databases on the book. Um, I could, you know, put together a, a, a crack team of sysadmins and run Ongo or run Redis or run Postgres or whatever. Um, with Dynamo, uh, you're, you are using Amazon's uh, services and expertise. Okay. And, and you're paying money for it. Well, I, I'm sure they have um, they have a pretty generous free tier. But but yeah, um, I think that's that's the along the uh, commercial versus open source axis. Uh, this is the one non-open source uh, database we use in the book. Uh, in terms of what kind of database it is, um, it, it is pretty interesting. And, uh, you know, I actually, I had to coin a term um, to, uh, I actually, hold on a sec. L let me look in the book really quick here because I come up with a, a way of describing uh, the data model that I think I call it like NoSQL plus or um, I forget. I haven't read this chapter in a while. Sorry, but no worries. Yeah. So, so DynamoDB. It's um, it's definitely a 
um, a NoSQL database in terms of uh, scalability and in terms of offering a lot of um, flexibility in the data model. Um, but it is a little bit like like um, like relational databases because you know you do have to work with uh, with tables of data first of all, and and you do have to provide some uh, some information about those tables. So you have to define things like um, like keys, um, how particular rows are are identified by key, and there's all kinds of interesting ways to do that. And um, and you also do have to um, have to define some of your columns. So. Um, it, you know, it's interesting though, because with DynamoDB, you can do things like, um, you can define some of the columns and then also, um, have, have unstructured data, uh, stored in those same rows. Uh, okay. so there is a lot of flexibility. So it, it you know, it, it is a pretty interesting, uh, synthesis of, of the kinds of queries that you'd want to run on a, on a, a relational database, you know, the equivalent of select star from table where, X equals Y, um, and they actually do have a, um, a querying language, um, a very simple one that enables you to do that. But they can also uh, accommodate unstructured data as well. So, so DynamoDB is, um, yeah, it's 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 very interesting. Um, it uh, it's actually based on on a an academic paper that came out of Amazon in the mid aughts. Um, I'm going to say 2005, 2006, but it may have been a little bit earlier. Uh, and it's known throughout the industry as the Dynamo paper, and and the Dynamo paper has actually been uh, been uh, extremely influential. So the database React uh, is is explicitly uh, based on the Dynamo paper, and a couple others have have borrowed pretty heavily from it. Um, I believe Cassandra is an example of a database that's that's heavily Dynamo inspired. Okay. Um, yeah. So now, um, so Dynamo was uh, was the internal database that Amazon built to. Uh, to run their shopping cart application as well as a couple others. And, you know, for a shopping cart application, um, you know, uh, any, any transaction that you lose, any data that you lose translates directly into lost money. And so Amazon had to come up with a super scalable uh, way to, um, to handle this particular set of use cases and wrote the Dynamo, wrote the Dynamo paper, unleashed it upon the world. And it, it could well be argued that that the NoSQL paradigm, uh, you know, there there could have been a NoSQL paradigm without it, but it's it it, it was so heavily influential that that it, it would have ended up looking completely different. I think. Interesting. So yeah, so so DynamoDB, on the other hand, is the um, is the commercially available uh, version of, of of the Dynamo system that they that they built internally. Okay. Now the. I guess the last one, uh, Redis, is probably, I'm guessing, arguably the most common database used in conjunction with other databases. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, because um, because Redis is typically seen as uh, as more of a, a caching database. So for use cases like like session storage. And things of that sort. Um, uh, Redis is, I think, Redis and Memcached are are typically seen as kind of the two, um, as kind of the the two um, highest stars of the the caching galaxy, I guess you could say. And um, you know, you definitely would not want to store, you know, username and password data or something like that in Redis. Uh, you definitely would not use Redis um, as an OLAP um, analytics database or anything of that sort. 
Um, but for, for more, I guess you could say niche use cases, although I hate to say niche because things like, uh, like caching and session storage are extremely important, but, but Redis does tend to be very adept at filling in, uh, in some of the gaps, so to speak. So if you're writing a, a standard, uh, web application or a SaaS application, uh, that's, that uses, you know, utilizes a bunch of long-term storage for, for data about, uh, you know, if you're building a social media application, uh, you know, long-term data about um, about users and about the relationships with people and so on and so forth. Um, but Redis is going to fill in a lot of the gaps in terms of the the, the user experience on the web page, for example. Uh, you know, Redis is very, very adept at this type of thing. Now, is it... <clears throat> Sorry. So there's a lot of, like, for instance, I, th- I think there's a lot of tutorials around for how to how to shim Redis in between other, other databases then? Is that what you mean by a, a caching store? Um, so uh, actually I don't even really know what that means by uh, when you compared it to, to uh, memcached. Um, mm-hmm. So is that, so if, if I, if I query a bunch of stuff out of my, my uh, other database, but it's going to, I want to keep it around for new page updates or something. Is that what, what that's for or, or what? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you mean. Uh, well, caching, you know, is, is one of, of a couple, uh, prominent use cases for Redis. You know, it can also do things like, um, like basic pub sub, you know, so, uh, uh, much like systems like Kafka and, and Pulsar, um, it, it, it handles that use case pretty well. I guess by caching, I mean more um, that it's uh, it's intended for uh, for short-lived data. Oh, okay. So um, so you can use Redis as a um, as a, a longer-term persistent data store, but its um, its its data model and, and way of doing things isn't really primarily geared towards that. So it's um, it's primarily geared towards being uh, incredibly fast, and I mean Redis is just amazingly blazingly fast, uh, and it, it achieves that by by basically um, when you write to Redis, it goes first into memory, and then every once in a while, um, at a, at an interval that you can set in the configuration, Redis will will store it on disk. And and so that means so what that means, of course, is that if you uh, if something is stored in memory and something goes wrong and the the node becomes unavailable, for example, uh, before the data gets written to disk, uh, then it means that that data is essentially lost. You know, it, so the let's say the node comes back up and the, the memory cache gets cleared out or something, um, that data is is essentially lost. And so for for caching, that tends to be perfectly acceptable. Um, I mean, you don't want that, that happening all the time, but it's not the end of the world if you lose uh, a user session store or something like that. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, lightning fast, but with, uh, with certain drawbacks. With some caveats. Okay. So there's um, the, a big question. Uh, the then is, if I'm going to start it, I need a store for my data. How do I decide what to use? Oof. Yeah, that's that's really tough. Um, we actually do have a um, a couple uh, handy tables in the um, in the appendices to the book where um, where you can you know we have um, tables that list uh, prominent features and you know which databases uh, which databases support them. So if you need something like um, 
uh, I'm going to take a look right here, you know. Uh, so if, if you need um, some form of, uh, of you know, cross-node replication scheme, for example, uh, you know, which databases support that. Oh, okay. If you need sharding, which, which databases support that. Uh, if you need um, uh, so-called ACID transactions, uh, which databases support that and which don't. Um, you know, we, we have a couple places in the book okay. where we try cool. to, to pre present that information in very, very concise form. But that, of course, um, that, that raises the question of what, uh, which, which features you're looking for and um, what, what trade-offs are you, are you trying to make. And so, you know, I would say that, that a, good, a good place to start would be to say, um, uh, what problem am I trying to solve? Um, what are the, uh, what's unacceptable for my use case? Like, what's, what, what's the worst case scenario? Um, in, in some cases, the worst case scenario is that, um, is that fetching data takes a long time. Uh, in that case, you know, it's, it's better to maybe, uh, have a value that's not the most up-to-date value as long as there's something. Right. Uh, so that's a good thing to know. Uh, in some cases you, you absolutely, uh, when you go to uh, you, some cases you need to run a complex query over lots and lots of data and you need an exactly right answer every single time, uh, with no, uh, with no slippage and no no fibbing and no um, no um, eventual consistency as as we call it in, in NoSQL land. Um, I mean that's a good thing to know. Um, if you're building a shopping cart application, you need to never lose uh, lose anybody's shopping cart data because that's that's essentially leaving money on the floor. Uh, you know that's a good thing to know and a good place to start. Okay. So that I, I you know like in terms of like in terms of like step step zero is basically what's what's the worst case scenario and what are databases that enable me to, to avoid that and you know typically uh once you know the the answer to question zero um as i'm somewhat fancifully calling it um that will that will often not just lop several databases off of your your list of options but it will probably eliminate whole paradigms of databases, uh, it might eliminate it might eliminate the whole NoSQL paradigm. You know, it could very well be that you answer question zero, and you know none of the none of the seven databases in the book are going to work for you. And you know you just need maybe you just need Postgres, yeah. or, or 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 sorry, maybe six of the seven databases in the book that aren't that aren't SQL databases. You know, you know maybe at the end of the day you just need MySQL or Postgres, and um, and I think that that's a great place to start. Well, and, and from there, you can start start digging in and you, you know refining refining your query, so to speak. Well, nice pun. Yeah, yeah, uh, always. Uh, one of the things I like, especially, um, is this this land. I mean, this is a broad landscape with with uh, with with um, I guess similar sized chunks. So it's it's not really like for instance, uh, I don't know how to say this other than. People jumping into stuff. This is a great book, for instance, for a college student or a grad student, because you don't know what you're going to deal with when you're actually out in industry. So having having a good walk through um, a whole bunch of different types of models and actually having some examples that you can code up and, and watch how it works, it'll also tell you not just theoretically what a database is like, but also what it's like to work with it. And I think that's a, that's a neat standpoint. Um, to, to give people a good broad picture of the landscape. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate that. I, <laughs> I think that's, uh, 
I think that's very well said. I have nothing to add. <laughs> um, the the and and I definitely am just sort of curious about a lot of these. So actually, I'm I'm even more curious after talking with you about these of getting into some of these things. I I think uh, I think it'd be fun to play with a bunch of them. Um, but the the uh, I guess I really the last thing on your in your table of contents is cap theorem. I don't even know what that is. What is a cap theorem? Uh, cap theorem is uh, is is very important, uh, and it's it's basically the idea that uh, there are three things that you might want out of a database, uh, and you can't have uh, you can't have all three. You can have at most two of the three things. So one is is consistency. Um, uh, so C yeah C is consistency, A is availability, uh, P is partition tolerance. So uh, consistency means that uh, when you tell the database uh, this is the current state of things, um, this is the current uh, state of this table or or, or or you know of this value, um, that when you go to read the table or the value, um, that it's it, it's going to be completely up to date, uh, and the database is going to be able to have a present a a coherent picture of things. Um, a Availability means that um, that the database is is available all the time. So uh, you know maybe it can it can tolerate a couple nodes going down, um, but uh, it you're never gonna query the database and not get an answer. Okay. So that's availability. Um, P partition tolerance is um, is basically uh, if you're running multiple nodes of the database, which I mean you know nowadays. Uh, if you're you're running databases in production, you're all you're always running lots and lots of nodes. Um, so a partition is um, it, it means network partition, which is basically if some of your nodes can't uh, can't talk to other nodes, or if one of the nodes gets cut off from the network. And of course, that happens all the time. You know, networks are are you know notoriously uh, fuzzy and brittle in this way. Um, can the database still function? And so. Um, you know, lots and lots and lots of databases are uh, give you ways of having two of those three things. So CP databases, um, you know, relational databases tend to be CP databases. So uh, you can have consistency and you can have partition tolerance, but you can't have availability. Uh, so those databases, you know, sometimes the database is just going to be down uh, because you lose, uh, you know, you lose a node or something like that. And uh, and it's like, sorry, we just, um, we can't give you the exact right answer. So we're not going to give you any answer. Okay. Um, no SQL databases tend more strongly to be AP databases, which is where they emphasize availability over consistency. Um, and so, you know, for example, uh, for use cases, like I talked about where, uh, where the most important thing is that the database is always available. You know, you can't have your shopping cart database ever go down. Uh, now, in a shopping cart scenario, let's say a user is, uh, you know, puts five things in their, their Amazon shopping cart, and then they remove one, and, uh, and the database, you know, forgets. You know, something happens, the database forgets that you removed one and thinks you still have five items in the shopping cart. Well, that's okay. I mean, that's, <laughs> a, like, that's an acceptable, it's, it's not consistent, it's not. It's uh, it's not consistent. You know, you, you experienced. Uh, uh, you know, it 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 wasn't able to uh, 
to correctly provide the new state of things that you wanted it to, to provide, but it's available all the time. And uh, the, re- the re- user is going to check it and delete it again if they want to. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and for, um, for use cases that are, that are analogous to that, where, um, where uh, having um, outdated data or an, an outdated state of things uh, is more important than uh, than than consistency. Yeah, uh, or or, to, like, or rather, where it just has to be available all the time, even if at the cost of um, of, of consistency, then uh, then you'd want to go for an AP database. Two people looking at a an article on the web, seeing a different number of likes, isn't that big of a deal? Yes, exactly. Whereas. If you pull, if uh, somebody was sharing um, the most recent, uh, you know, New York Times expose on something, something in, in politics, and uh, and you didn't know how many likes it had because that database was just down uh, because you know consistency is more important than availability, that would be weird. Like your Facebook, <laughs> your Facebook users would say, like, that's weird. It seems like a popular article. Uh, you know, in that case, you know. 1.5 million likes versus 1.47 million likes is, you know, not really the end of the world. Right. Yeah. Well, I think this was a really fun, quick fly through of a whole bunch of just different databases. So thank well, you thanks. a lot. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Brian. Yeah. Th- thank you for your kind words. I, I had a great time talking to you and uh, yeah, love the, uh, love the show. And maybe we'll have to get you on sometime to talk about containers. Cause I don't know about those either. Okay. Yeah, I, I would certainly, I would certainly love to. Uh, you know, like I said, nowadays my my head is is much more in in uh, container Kubernetes monitoring observability land than it is in in database land. So uh, I would be more than happy to uh, come back on and chat. Cool. Well, thanks for your time, and uh, we'll talk to you later. All right. See you, Ryan. Thanks a lot. Thanks again to PyCharm for sponsoring the episode. The offer they set up for this show's listeners is only good until December 1st. So to try PyCharm Pro free for four months, go to testingcode.com slash PyCharm. That link is also on the show notes at testingcode.com slash 53, as well as links to the book we talked about, Seven Databases in Seven Weeks, and also links to all the databases we talked about. Thanks again to Luke for his effort on the book and for talking with me for this episode. And thank you for listening, for sharing the show with friends and colleagues, for supporting the show through Patreon, and for using the link in the show notes to try out PyCharm. That's all for now. Now go test something.